Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Good morning. My name is Aaron Elmore. I'm lead pastor here. And I'd like to begin by stating the obvious, which is if it looked awkward and like this podium's heavy, it's because it is. <laughs> um, we finally got a podium that is the right size for a person of my stature. I'm very excited about it. Uh, but it is difficult to move. So if you let your gym membership lapse during the pandemic, you want to join the team of people that bring the podium on and off the stage, I encourage you to do that. <laughs> on a more serious note, uh, I'd like to thank the worship team and just express how grateful I am that they allow God uh, to pour his grace through them into our lives. Um, Wow, just powerful music this morning. So thank you. So this morning we're continuing in a series on the life of Joseph. And we're looking at how God poured out his grace through Joseph, in particular through this moment where he comes into a position of leadership. Now, godly leadership is using our influence and power for good and not for evil. It's about taking our time, our talents, our treasure, our wisdom, our experiences, our opportunities, taking all of that and allowing God uh, to use it for his glory and for our good. It's not about filling some need or void in your own life. Being a leader is not about having a self-serving agenda. It's not even about accomplishing somebody else's agenda. I want to suggest that being a godly leader is primarily about God's grace flowing through you into the lives of others. Being a godly leader is about God's grace flowing through you into the lives of others. And therefore, being a leader is not primarily about having a certain degree or status A certain position or rank, leadership is about influence. It's about influencing other people and moving them, helping them to move closer to God and understanding who God is and his grace. And so the moment that Joseph becomes a leader in the story, it's not when he gets the ring placed on his finger. It's not when he has the robe placed on top of him. It's not when the gold chain is placed around his neck. I'd like to see what that looked like. I'm sure it was very impressive. No, it's, it's not even the moment when he gets on the chariot and he rides through town and people say, make way for our new leader, Joseph. That's not the moment when he becomes a leader. He becomes a leader in verse 46 when he begins to do the work that God has called him to do. When he goes to work, when the flow of grace begins in his life and God uses Joseph to be a blessing to other people. And so we see this theme of the grace of God pouring out in his life and through his leadership through a couple of different themes. The first one I want to piggyback on last week's theme, which was faithfulness. Now, throughout this series, we've primarily emphasized Joseph's faithfulness through the difficult times, through the hardships, through going through the tragedy with his family and being placed in prison and being accused unjustly. Joseph was faithful through the hard times. But here we see that things have finally turned around for him. Life is going better. And sometimes it's in those moments that it's precisely the most difficult to be faithful to God. We think about uh, tragedies and trials. We think about people 
that we know who've gone through hard things and who've expressed incredible faith. And that's a powerful testimony. But I wonder if we shouldn't also focus on the challenge of being faithful to God during the good seasons of our life. So there's a pastor, he's gone to be with the Lord, but James Boyce uh, preached this a number of years ago on this passage. He said, the fact that Joseph kept his eyes on God in adversity is remarkable. But even more remarkable is the fact that he kept his eyes on God when he was prosperous. I know so many people who are going through a hard time in this church. Some even that are in this very room, some that are watching online today, and their testimony of of God's faithfulness in their life through hard seasons has been extraordinary. And I thank God for those testimonies. But I think we also need to focus on the flip side of that. We need to ask ourselves the question, what about during the good times? What if it's actually actually extra challenging sometimes when life seems to be going well to trust in the Lord fully? Because sometimes when we think we have everything that we need, we can't see our true need. Sometimes when life is going well and, and seems, things just seem to be great, we think to ourselves, okay, great, I've got control of this. I got this. But we don't. We need to trust in God even through those hard seasons. It can be the very moment of a promotion or prosperity that causes our lives to fall apart, and sometimes we don't even realize it. You've probably heard numerous stories of people who won the lottery, and then years later they ended up with nothing completely bankrupt, they lost their health, they lost relationships. I was just reading a a Times article recently that kind of brought together a number of these stories and people who'd won the lottery and almost every single one of them said, I wish I had never won it. Because sometimes success ruins us. It ruins our character. It causes us to compromise. It causes people to turn against us. It changes the focus of our lives. And so it's an incredible testimony to keep our eyes on Jesus whenever we face adversity, but I think it's also a powerful testimony when we keep our eyes on Jesus when things are going well. Because if we leave God out of our lives, we push him to the margins, our lives will unravel. Even if we appear to have success, we have lots of money, maybe our health is good, but if God is not at the center of our lives, we will fall apart. We have to believe that. We want to keep our lives close to him. And it's challenging through hard things and through good things in life. I want to give you a little bit of a a metaphor here. And I know I've used this one before, uh, but you'll have to apologize. It's it's like I tell my wife sometimes, uh, who's heard all my stories way too many times, we've got a long way to go, so just get used to it. (laughs) You're going to hear my stories and illustrations more than once. It's part of our human nature. So think of your life uh, as being like a planet. And God is the sun. So God is to be at the center of our world. God is the source of energy, the source of life. And we're like planets orbiting around the sun. And we're kept in orbit around God by his grace, which is like the gravitational pull of the sun that is keeping us in orbit. But yet, imagine that there are all these forces that are trying to pull us away from the sun and pull our orbit further away from God. We want to allow his grace to keep us close. We want to be, not in real life, but we want to be like Mercury. We want to be as close to the sun as possible. I used to think of my spiritual life like the stock market. It just kind of goes like this. 
And then a buddy shared with me this illustration about the sun and planets, and it's just resonated with me. We want God to be at the center of our life, and so he is that sun, and we are orbiting. We want that orbital pattern to be moving toward him and not away. But there are many forces that can pull us away from God, and ironically, sometimes it is God's good gifts which can be the very thing that pulls us further away from him. Sometimes it can be a success that causes us to take our eyes away from him. And so Joseph kept his eyes on the Lord. He gave God credit even when his life turned around. One of the indicators we have of this is through the naming of his two sons. Each has an important theme attached to it from the story of Joseph's life. So we know that names are important in the Bible. Uh, They're important in Hebrew culture. A name was often given to a child to characterize the circumstances into which they were born. Or sometimes it would highlight or celebrate a certain theme that would be present in the life of that child. And so Joseph names the two sons here as a testimony to God's faithfulness of bringing him through hard years, but also celebrating the fruitfulness that God was now bringing about in his life. So the next theme that we see is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Now, we're not talking about the ordinary human condition of being forgetful. Uh, Sometimes we're forgetful because we're young and immature. I can remember when I was in Little League at age five, uh, I I just forgot everything at that point in my life. I was just totally scatterbrained and I didn't bring my hat. I didn't bring my glove. I don't know how you play t-ball without a glove. Sometimes I even forgot the shirt that was part of my uniform, okay? There's There's a forgetfulness that comes with young age. There's also a forgetfulness that comes later in life because of forces at work, where we begin forgetting things. Sometimes you walk in a room and you forget why you went there. Anybody? You go to the refrigerator. You can't remember what you came for. Sometimes you're just energy deprived and sleep deprived because you have two preschoolers and so you're forgetful. Any, can I get an amen to that? Anybody? Okay, yes. Thank you, my friend. No, that's not the forgetfulness we're talking about here. I think this forgetfulness is a kind of lens through which we can view our lives and allows us to not allow or causes us to not allow past events to prevent us from receiving God's grace in present circumstances. That's what I think this idea of forgetting is about. So Manasseh, Joseph's first son, it's a, it comes from the Hebrew verb which means to forget. So his name means one who makes one forget. So Joseph explains that his son's name is a play on words. It means he has made me forget my trouble. Now, I don't think Joseph literally meant God has caused me to forget the experiences of my past. That's, that's not always possible or even the goal. I think what he's saying by this is he's saying that God's grace is so strong in my life now. God is doing a new thing right now that's so powerful that it's, it's changing the lens through which I view my life. And, and now no longer am I just completely focused on my past troubles. It's almost like God has caused me for, to forget them because his grace is so good to me now. I think Paul was trying to express a similar idea when he wrote to the Philippian church. He said, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul had a horrible past. 
And though his past had certainly shaped his present experiences and his understanding of the gospel, Paul wanted his past to refine him but not define him. He didn't want his past experiences to continue to define the rest of his life. And so he says, I'm going I'm to forget the past and I'm going to move forward toward what God has for me. I think what these examples are showing us, the big picture message of Scripture, is that grace keeps us moving forward in life. Moving forward. Whether our baggage is from personal tragedy and pain or personal failure and guilt, whether it's from our own doing or the damage of others, grace pulls us onward and pulls us inward to the Father. It enables us to experience God's present grace and God's plan and to look forward to the future of grace that we've sung about this morning. Again, it's not a magic wand that makes the pain of our past go away. It's not about that. But he's saying, look, God's grace is so good to me now that I'm not going to allow the past to completely define my present and my future. God has caused me to forget, so his grace will pull me forward. Now, the second son born brings up the theme of fruitfulness. His, main, his name, Ephraim, it means doubly fruitful. So Joseph explains his choice by saying that God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Now, isn't that interesting? Because he just said that God has caused me to forget my suffering. Well, that's how we know it doesn't mean a literal for suffering. He's saying God has changed my perspective on that suffering. And now his grace has enabled me to move on and he's made me doubly fruitful. He's given me two sons. In other words, there was a point in my life when I didn't think my life was amounting to anything. I didn't think there was any fruitfulness to me, for me. Let's remember that 13 years has transpired between Joseph being sold by his brothers into slavery at age 17 and now at age 30, he's moving into this position of leadership. 13 years is a long time. For some of you, that's your entire life. It's a long time. It's not an inconsequential amount of time. And I know there were moments during that when Joseph thought, what am I doing with my life? Or maybe a better question, God, what are you up to? He's in his mid-20s, stuck in prison. God, what are you up to? Is anything good going to come from me? A long time of waiting to see the fruitfulness of God. And now we see the fruitfulness expressed through his two sons building a family and more importantly, his leadership over Egypt. But it was a long time coming. I think there's a couple of themes that we see in Scripture related to this idea of fruitfulness that are repeated in a number of places. The first one is that God exclusively produces good fruit. If there's going to be any good fruit from your life, anything truly lasting from the kingdom of God, it comes from God. It's only by his grace that your life can produce fruitfulness. But we also see the promise in Scripture that God always produces good fruit. If we abide in Christ, we will produce good fruit. Sometimes we don't see that fruit. Sometimes the fruit is not the kind that we maybe thought we would bear in our lives. But there will always be good fruit that comes as God is working in our life. And the third principle that we certainly see here is that God is that good fruit comes in seasons. In seasons. There are seasons of fruitfulness. For Joseph, he had a long season of waiting, a long season of preparation in order to see this come about in his life. We know that seasons are important in life. I'm enjoying the fall season right now. It's nice that 
things change. We don't have heat forever. We don't have super cold forever. We get to experience mostly all four seasons here in Tulsa. And it's a beautiful thing, but we have to be patient through those seasons because in some seasons, we, we just, we don't like the season that we're in. We're waiting. Some of you are summer people. You hate the winter. And vice versa. I think as we think about the, the seasons in our life, it causes us uh, to be patient and to trust that God will produce good fruit in the right season. Psalm 1, it talks about a tree that is planted by streams of water and it says it bears fruit in season. Our students, you guys are in a season of life right now. Your, your tree is growing and you're focused really on laying a foundation for your life. That's the roots that are growing underground. You're, you're making, establishing patterns and practices right now. You're making important choices that are gonna help shape the trajectory of your life. You're in a, a season, it's an important season, and some of the decisions that you're making now are gonna set you up to produce good fruit for God for years and years and years in your life. Now, some of you in the room, maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum. You would consider yourself old. That's how Wayne used to say it, Old. Now, I'm not going to put a number on that. I'll let you self-identify. If you're an older person, you're in a season of life. And you remember last week I talked about how life is a marathon, not a sprint. You're getting toward the end of your marathon. And there's this amazing thing that happens at the end of a marathon. No matter how tired you are, no matter how much pain you're in, most runners seem to manage to pull together energy and effort to run harder at the very end of the marathon. Even though it's been a hard run, they sprint to the finish. And so I want to encourage you, if you're someone who would consider yourself in the older season of life, sprint to the finish. Don't buy the American dream, hey, just, just be, eat, lift life, take life easy, sit back, relax. Yeah, there's some enjoyment to old age. Enjoy the fact you don't have to earn a paycheck for a living. Enjoy that. Enjoy God's good gifts. Go play golf in Florida. I got no problem with any of that. Enjoy God's gifts. But make the end of your life count. Sprint to the finish. Make it a sprint in prayer. Maybe you say, Pastor, I don't have the physical energy I used to have. I can't go out there and, and build a, a wheelchair ramp. I just can't do it anymore. Make it a sprint of prayer. Make it a sprint of wisdom. Make it a sprint of testimony. Make it a sprint of holding babies in the nursery. Make it a sprint of serving the Lord in whatever way you can. Sprint to the finish line. Give it your best and give it your all. Make it a season of fruitfulness. Finally, we see in this part of the story, again, the idea of foreshadowing. I mentioned a number of times that Joseph is a kind of prefigure for Jesus. His life points in various ways ahead to the future ministry of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of parallels. It's, it's truly remarkable. In fact, there was a guy who wrote a book. I think it was 101 parallels between Joseph and Jesus. That's a lot. Here's a couple of ones that stood out to me. So both Joseph and Jesus had a long period of preparation followed by a public ministry beginning around age 30. Interesting. Both were sold in betrayal for a bag of coins, 120 and 130. Joseph goes from the lowest place in prison to becoming prime minister, second in command, and Jesus was placed dead in a tomb before rising to sit at the right hand of God 
the Father. In so many ways, the life of Joseph points ahead to Jesus. And here we see in this moment that Joseph was placed in this position of influence. And you notice the phrase that Pharaoh said? He said, look, if you're hurting, if you're starving, if you're experiencing this famine, what did he tell the people to do? He said, go to Joseph. He's the man. He's in charge. He knows where you can find bread. What a powerful parallel, because here we are in our lives, and the goal of our lives is to tell people, go to Jesus. He's the man. He's the one who can fill your spiritual hunger. He will give you a bread, and if you eat it, you will never be hungry again. He can give you a drink of water, and if you drink from his life, you will never be thirsty again. God strategically placed Joseph in the middle of a hard time of famine, and he through him, poured out his grace and mercy and and saved the lives of countless people. But how much more did God place Jesus at just the right time to solve for us the spiritual famine? We all are hungering and thirsting for a new way of life, a better way to be human. And it comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ, through surrendering all of who we are, from going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm starving, I need your help. And he will fill us and he will help us. And so too, our lives are designed to point people to Jesus, to tell people where they can go. The kind of leaders the world needs is Christ-centered people with a gospel of hope. People are for the people and for the place that God has called us to. People who will be willing to be used by God, that he would pour his grace into our lives and it would overflow into the lives of other people. That's what Joseph did. He did it by the grace of God every step along the way. And sometimes when we see people in the Bible, we think I could never have done something like that. God would never use me in such a powerful way. The truth is, God is the one who determines how he will use us. He's the one who determines what fruit he will bear through us. But friends, he is faithful. He will do us and he will use you. He will pour out his grace into your life and he will use you to spread that grace to other people. Joseph pointed forward to Jesus. We also point to Jesus. That's our primary calling. Would you join me as we pray about these things? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. And God, we thank you for the story of Joseph. What a powerful turnaround story. God, and how you poured your grace into his life and through his life. And Lord, we ask that you would use us in such a way, not for our glory, but for yours alone. And God, that you would use us, again, not to point to ourselves, but to point to Jesus. And that we would feast upon him, that our lives would be lived with Jesus at the center. God, we pray that we would be faithful to you and that through our lives that you would bear good fruit for your kingdom. We love you and we trust in you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.